Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This case is why we lock our doors at night. Attacked all over California. The community was taken hostage. Brutal homicides. One of the most prolific serial killers in the history of this state, if not in this nation. Today we're going to launch a national campaign to help identify the Golden State Killer. The Golden State Killer committed 51 attacks and 12 murders and successfully evaded capture for the past 40 years, in part because he was a smart, meticulous planner. He implemented his own alarm systems, bottles on door jams that would fall if someone tried to open the door. He stacked dishes on the backs of the male victims that he tied up. Those would shatter and create noise if the victim got free of his binds. He had escape routes mapped out for both the victims' homes and the neighborhoods. He'd carefully remove window screens and leave windows open as an alternate exit from a house or place household items at the foot of the backyard fences as a boost to ensure his successful vault over the top for a quick departure. He used stolen bicycles that he would abandon once they served their purpose, transporting him to and from his crimes. He always wore a ski mask so that no victim ever saw his face. He used gloves so that his fingerprints were never left at a victim's house. He made location a priority in determining his attacks, and he stalked the potential location and victim for an extended period of time to avoid surprises upon entering or escaping. I'm Joke Finciun. And I'm Biagio Messina, and we're the producers behind the HLN documentary Unmasking a Killer, which investigates the unsolved case of the Golden State Killer. Today, we're going inside the killer's mind, exploring and analyzing what all of this offender's behavior, including his predilection for prolonged stays in victims' homes, his affinity for eating their food, and in some cases, drinking their beer, and his habit of taking non-valuable trophies from each victim. What all this behavior reveals about his identity, personality, and upbringing, and what it indicated to law enforcement at the time about his likelihood of criminal escalation. Retired Contra Costa County Detective Larry Crompton, who spoke with us at length for the documentary, says law enforcement and criminal profilers weren't the only ones concerned by this offender's mode of operation and behavior. At that time, he was not the most active rapist in California. He was the most violent person in California history. 
but there were other rapists out there. And in talking to Dr. Emily at the Vacaville Medical Center, she said that when she talked to her rapists that were in there, that they said, you better catch them. They're giving us a bad name. And I said, a bad name? What do you mean? And she said, you have to understand who I'm dealing with here. They don't think they're hurting anybody. They are raping, but they're not hurting. And they said, this man wants to hurt. He wants to kill. You better catch him. The East Area Rapists' violent sexual assault attacks in Northern California did in fact escalate to murder in Southern California. Retired senior FBI profiler Dr. Mary Ellen O'Toole believes there are patterns of behavior with this offender that point to his psychopathy. She explains paraphilic behaviors, how they likely manifested in the Golden State Killer, and what his behaviors may tell law enforcement about where he might be and what he might be doing today. Welcome, Dr. Mary Ellen O'Toole, retired senior FBI profiler. She has spent 28 years with the FBI, more than half of it in the groundbreaking behavioral analysis unit. She is a trained FBI hostage negotiator and recognized as the FBI's leading expert on psychopathy. Dr. O'Toole, thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, the pleasure is mine. Thank you. In the Unmasking a Killer documentary, you mentioned that we almost never know every crime committed by these serial offenders. For the Golden State Killer, his tally stands at 51 attacks and 12 murders. But you think there's good reason to believe that we don't have all of his crimes accounted for. Can you explain that to us? Yes. Here's the reason that I say that. In a crime like this, this offender very likely went into people's homes and burglarized them or even just walked around to see where the bedrooms were, et cetera. And the person who lived there was not even aware that they became a victim of that crime, so they wouldn't know to report it. And that probably happened multiple times. And then secondly, sexual assault is is a violent crime, but it's one that is has a very low reporting rate to it. And so just based on that alone, there are very likely uh, victims out there who were assaulted by him, sexually assaulted by him, but for a whole variety of reasons, they never called law enforcement and they may not have even told anyone. And so for those two reasons, there's obviously, in my opinion, going to be more crimes out there that this person committed that never were reported to the police. A question we get asked a lot about the Golden State Killer is how come location was so much more important to him than the physical attributes of the female victims? He was a a location hunter more than a specific targeted victim. Well, that is really an important question. And for a profiler, we look at exactly the same thing. First of all, he's very adept at figuring out a good neighborhood to go to. He knows what he's looking for. He knows when he sees it. He looks for ways in. He looks for ways out. He looks for certain apartments or certain homes that would afford him the ability to, for example, look in the windows, possibly even go into the residence where no one was there. He would know um, the comings and goings of different homes so he could make the smartest selection of what place to break into. So it really tells me that he's very, very good. He does his homework when it comes to picking those residences where he feels very comfortable that he can blend in with the environment. He knows how the neighborhood works. He knows the dynamics 
and he's comfortable with being able to get in and get out, and even possibly being able to give a good excuse for being there if he is stopped by the police. So this sets him apart from being, you know, an opportunity killer or an opportunity assaulter, right? So how, if he's so prepared versus feeling the urge at the time that he sees a victim, what does that tell us in terms of how law enforcement should approach this case and investigate this case? Well, it tells me a couple of things. It tells me that he understands how to stalk a neighborhood. And then it tells me that after he feels comfortable in that neighborhood and he feels as though he's got the information that he needs, the next thing is now he selects a victim. And so the victim may be a victim of opportunity until she becomes targeted. And it's not likely that he was very careful with the selection of the neighborhood and the specific residence and sloppy with the victim selection. That doesn't seem to be the case, at least not not with this case. That degree of planning, that degree of strategy that he uses to pick the neighborhood, he probably employs a certain degree of of strategy and and pre-planning to select the victim as well. So by that, I mean the number of crimes that this man committed, he probably went out and selected victims three, four, five ahead of when he would actually assault them. So in other words, he put caution, consideration, and time and effort into picking his victims as well. And that would have to include looking through windows and watching the comings and goings of victims when they were not even aware of it. And in some instances, going into the residence when people were not home so he could become familiar with the inside of the residence. Right. And, you know, uh, speaking of the victims, the Golden State Killers victims range in age from young teens to late 30s. Now, with his youngest victim, age 13, why hasn't the Golden State Killer also been labeled a pedophile? Where do profilers draw the line? Well, when you characterize someone as being a pedophile, what you look for is their ongoing and constant sexual attraction to prepubescent young girls or young men. So in this case, his victim selection age range went from 13 to much older. So that suggests someone that selected um, not necessarily based on age, because he may not know exactly, but based on some other kind of of criteria. And the 13-year-old may not have looked 13 to him, or he may may have decided once he got inside the home that he would victimize her. But the fact that Um, The range of victims that he has is so broad, he's not focused just on 11, 12, or 13-year-old girls, says that he doesn't have paraphilic behavior, and paraphilic behavior is a sexual deviancy. He doesn't have the paraphilic behavior known as pedophilia. You know, the Golden State Killer, when attacking as the East Area Rapist, was actually overheard crying about his mother at some of the crime scenes. Now, I was fascinated to learn that you think that was actually his way of misleading law enforcement. Why was that? With an offender like this, this is somebody that lacks empathy and compassion for his victims. It's just simply not there. So when someone reports that he was really crying, allegedly, about his mother, again, that could be demonstrating behavior that would mislead the victim to thinking, well, you know, this is somebody that has maybe a conscience and who, you know, feels guilty for what he did. 
or has some kind of a problematic relationship with his mother, and they report that to the police when, in fact, it could be an intentional display of behavior to mislead law enforcement to look for the wrong type of person. Interesting. So he he's basically leaning on pop culture references and ideas about serial killers to make himself sound like a stereotypical serial killer, what we might think of that. He could be. And the fact that he this is behavior that he just engaged in so much of his developing years and then into his teen years and then later on, that he was evolving as he was going. And I think what's important when you see this kind of extensive predatory behavior where he's victimizing people and he continues and continues, he's really enjoying the behavior. And he enjoys, depending on his degree of impulsiveness and the need for kind of changing it every now and then, he's inserting other behaviors into his crime, oftentimes probably just to see what happens or, again, to have the victim report to the police something that the police never heard of before. Now, pop culture does seem to signal that if a boy becomes a serial killer, his mother is partly to blame. What can we speculate as to this offender's relationship with his mother? Well, the first thing that we can that we can say that I think is the most important is that we estimate about 95% of serial sexual killers have a psychopathic personality structure. And psychopathy is not a mental illness. It is a personality disorder. And this disorder has heavy genetic links to it. So that's the first thing. Now, as far as his relationships, you know, with his parents, it certainly would suggest that as he's developing and he's growing up, what we've seen in other in, in other serial murder cases is that the relationship with his parents is generally not good. The relationship if the parents are dysfunctional can be even worse. And depending on how he's treated by his mother whether she's his biological mother or his adoptive mother, if she herself has some serious personality issues or mental health issues, that can just exacerbate that relationship that he has with her. So it varies just in terms of how they treated one another, what the relationship was, if any, and then just how severely disordered his mother was. Right. And, you know, when thinking of this offender's behavior, One of the truly terrifying aspects of this case was when he first escalated from single women in the house to attacking couples in the house and how he even on his first time out had seemingly perfected the new script, including placing kitchen plates as a warning device in the back of the male victims while he assaulted their partner in the living room. You know, it was a very dangerous escalation for him, and yet he pulled it off on the first try. From a psychological perspective, can you explain the kind of mental planning this offender must go through? Sure. And you used the word dangerous for him, but it really wasn't dangerous for him. It was exciting for him. It was risk-taking for him. And this is an offender that has to evolve and engage in more behaviors that are riskier for him to engage in. But that's how he keeps it exciting, and that's how, how he keeps it thrilling. So when you see that kind of evolutionary process, it's not done out of dangerousness. This also is someone that doesn't feel the same kind of fear that you and I would feel if we were in the same circumstances. So when he he evolves into now going into homes where there is both a male and a female, the risk that he creates for himself is incredible because, you know, you don't know when you go into someone's house 
is that that male inside the house, you know, might have a gun, you know, might be an expert in karate, might be this or might be that. He still takes that risk to do that, and it may be mitigated because, you know, he knows, has developed a lot of intelligence about um, the comings and goings inside that home. But it's it's part of his personality to be very manipulative and controlling, and he takes the female and goes into another room and puts the, for example, a cup and saucer on the back of, of the uh, male in the house and then sexually assaults the woman inside another room. So that goes to his traits of being very controlling, very manipulative, and really somewhat sadistic because the male partner can hear the cries and, and the whimpers of the female in the other room going through this attack. And that in and of itself, just knowing that he's creating this environment where people are likely crying and begging for him to stop could have been very sexually arousing for him. Now, the Golden State Killer also used to eat food from the victim's fridge or pantry, drink their beer, hang out for hours, um, all while the victims were tied up. What does that behavior tell you about the offender? So the behavior of the offender going into someone's residence and spending a lot of time eating food out of the refrigerator, getting something to drink, but just being there for a long time suggests a couple of things. It suggests a familiarity with the inside of that home and the dynamics of that home, knowing who comes and who goes and at what times. So that's number one. And that would that would also suggest that where, where that knowledge comes from has to be that the offender had really stalked that house, had surveilled that house, and knows what those dynamics are. So that's number one. But number two... The desire that he shows just in being there shows a personality trait of it's grandiose and it's high thrill, high risk. And even though someone could come to the door at any time, a neighbor could come home at any time, just the idea that he's there and he's in control is very exciting for this offender. And that goes to the personality. There are 20 traits to someone being a psychopathic individual. And one of the traits is a need for thrill and excitement. And another is this individual is extremely grandiose. And another, this individual is extremely manipulative. So it's more than than just the sexual assault that he finds very exciting and stimulating. It's the idea that he can control and dominate this environment and he's in charge. And those aspects are equally important to him to make this crime worthwhile for him. Right. You know, all that planning and preparation you mentioned, I mean, it really speaks to the fact that this offender was very much about self-preservation. And we've talked on this podcast with different law enforcement officers about how when he almost got caught, it caused him to become furious uh, and how that anger sometimes caused the escalation of his behaviors. Now, thinking specifically of the Margaret incident, the 13-year-old who defied him and lived to tell the tale, how lucky was she? Well, she would have been very lucky because in other cases where the psychopath has similar features and is very arrogant about the fact that they're so effective and, and good at what they do, that they've scoped it out well, that they've done a really good job of surveillance, their expectation is that nothing is going to go wrong. So as soon as as something does go wrong, that would certainly make them extremely angry because they feel as though they're almost omnipotent, godlike, and have total control over the environment. So to have one of the victims make them realize that they do not, 
that would have infuriated him just because this is someone that has no conscience for what they do and they feel no remorse or guilt for what they do. So if someone didn't do exactly what he wanted, he had the option to ultimately kill them if he wanted to. We're not dealing with someone that would have been plagued with incredible remorse and sadness if he had to treat them in a lethal way. He could have done that. Now, we know that after an almost five-year absence, the Golden State Killer brutally murders Janelle Cruz in Irvine in 1986, his last known crime. And it was a case described by many as overkill. What does that tell you about this offender? In a case like this, where there's overkill or with the injury pattern, it appears to be overkill. Part of that reason could have been that the the victim responded to him in a way that he had not planned for. Again, keeping in mind that this is probably one of the most well-planned, organized offenders that we've seen. And so if plans don't go the way he wants, and if someone interferes with the planning or attempts to halt him in what his his mission is, because he's a mission-oriented offender, then you can see him becoming extremely angry about that. Because he obviously prides himself on having total control from the moment he walks into that residence or the moment he he makes contact with the victim until he's done. Does the five-year absence tell you anything? The five-year absence is really, it's a tough one to try to explain that five years can correlate to several things. It can correlate to his leaving the area for legitimate purposes. It could correlate to him having been arrested on something else back then. It could have correlated even with him being in a relationship with someone and not having the maybe ability or even the same desire to go out and engage in this kind of behavior. It also could have included some kind of illness. But There's reasons for it, but this person is so driven to go out and to engage in all of these behaviors from predatory behavior, from going into the homes, from making contact with victims. His urges have to be so strong that whatever that reason was, I find it difficult to believe that during that entire five-year period of time, he didn't engage in something close to this but those cases haven't been tied to the series in California. And we do know from these kinds of offenders, they have two types of behavior. They have their MO behavior and they have their signature behavior. And their MO behavior, modus operandi, is behavior that will change over a period of time. And that's usually behavior that they engage in so that they don't get identified and arrested. And then their signature behavior, that's the behavior that they engage in because that's what turns them on. That's what gets them excited. So the investigators, detectives who have been assigned to this task force would have been looking for those signature behaviors. And even if the offender had traveled someplace else, when they did contact other police departments, they would have been looking for the signature behaviors. But again, keeping in mind that Back then, law enforcement didn't share information in the same way that they do today. So, But I do think if if he had been involved in cases in the state of California that had a a similar nature to them, the task force would be aware of it. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, the MO was very specific. You know, speaking of that, the Golden State Killer was also known for taking trophies from his victims. That was nothing of great monetary value 
you know, one earring from a pair, a class ring, a china, driver's licenses. What is it about these seemingly insignificant trophies that the killers need? How does it work for them? The trophy depends on what the offender is looking for and what turns him on and where he intends to store it and what he intends to do with it. So if it's a piece of jewelry, if it's a set, for example, if it's a, a ring or a pair of earrings, he could be giving them to someone, and every time she wears them, it reminds him of where he got them. But the jewelry or the item can certainly be taken so he has a memory of who that person was. You know, and frankly, he had so many victims. He had so many places he entered. He had so many people that he interacted with. He either had to have a tremendous filing system, and he still might, or he would have taken those items back and very possibly created some kind of a system whereby he could remember when he took that, when he went into that home and who the victim was. So I think there's a pretty good chance if we could locate him and locate um, an area where he felt he could safely store these items, we would probably find them, even though those items, if he's still alive, could put him in prison for the rest of his life. These offenders keep those things. I think it's fascinating that you say he could have given a trophy necklace or bracelet or ring to his wife or girlfriend. So somewhere a a woman might just be in a relationship that she's not thinking too much about and be wearing jewelry that that her husband or boyfriend took from a victim. Yes, you could have someone that's in that situation. But keep in mind, this very careful offender who orchestrates everything that he does he would have picked a partner that he could have controlled, someone that wouldn't ask him a lot of questions, and someone that would have accepted the jewelry or multiple pieces of jewelry and never questioned him about it. So he would not have just casually gotten into a relationship with just anybody. It would be a relationship where he would clearly be the person that, that dominates who she sees, when she sees other people, who she can be around. Um, who she can go places with. So this would be someone that would that he could control all aspects of her life, and he does not have to answer to her for anything. There are many theories attributed to the Golden State Killer's perceived inactivity over the last 30 years. Physical disability, age, incarceration, and death are just a few that law enforcement have considered. But there's a reason why death does not top their list. Law enforcement has changed their thinking on the notion of a serial killer's inability to stop. And that is because of BTK, the serial killer so named because he used to bind, torture, and kill his victims. Dr. Mary Ellen O'Toole discusses that next. We are speaking with Dr. Mary Ellen O'Toole, retired senior FBI profiler. Now, law enforcement believes that there's a high probability that the Golden State Killer is still alive. There used to be a notion that serial killers couldn't stop, that the urges would force them to keep killing, that if a murder spree ended, it either meant the offender was in jail or dead. Obviously, BTK changed a lot of that thinking. Can you explain how this notion that serial killers can't stop no longer holds water? Well... For most serial sexual killers, that's that's really true, though, that they will continue um, until they get too old to do it. I mean, I've had 
um, serial killers tell me, you know, it's hard to move a body or it's hard to pick somebody else up as you get older. So they have the same ailments as anybody as they get into their 50s and their 60s and their 70s. So really, for the most part, these urges, they don't go away. However, and it's important to know where these urges come from, a serial sexual killer has what we call paraphilic behaviors. These are sexually deviant behaviors ranging from voyeurism all the way up, up to serial sexual sadism, which is um, a paraphilic behavior in which the offender is sexually aroused by the infliction of physical or emotional pain. What's attached to these paraphilic behaviors are these urges, these reoccurring urges in which they have to engage in this behavior. It's just that these urges are that strong to do it. Now, does that wane with time? You know, again, as they get older and they remember serial serial sexual killers also have illnesses. They can get cancer. They can break a leg. They can have the same medical condition that anyone their age can get. So that, that would certainly prevent them from going out and engaging in the in the behavior just based on, on them getting older. But the, the urges and the desire to do it are will still be there. Right. Now, if the Golden State Killer is still alive and hiding in plain sight, as it were, um, as BTK was, how could those around him know that they are living or working with someone with these behaviors? I think it would be difficult for someone um, around him to be able to necessarily associate him as being the Golden State Killer unless he wanted them to know. Now, with this person, what he did not do is to inject himself in, back into investigations by sending you know, notes or letters to detectives. That suggests someone with an incredible ego, along with all the other 20 traits and characteristics of psychopathy. This is simply one, an, an offender who continued to escalate and victimize people. While he's very grandiose, he may not be that grandiose to be sitting in, let's say, a retirement home, semi-disabled, and start to brag about what he did. He might, but if he begins to talk about what he did, then at that point, it, someone could certainly look at them and say, you know, I wonder if this person, you know, is telling the truth. Is there, is there someone that could have engaged in this, these kinds of behaviors? And in which case, hopefully they'd come forward to law enforcement. So I think the lack of anything at all on the part of this offender makes me think that as much as I want him to still be alive, and he's young enough when he started to still be alive, those urges in him was so powerful and so strong throughout his developmental years, early adulthood, that if he could, he would be out there um, engaging in in some of this behavior, or at least we would not have had such a long period of dormancy. So based on that, I think there's a pretty good uh, possibility that, that he's dead. In terms of the self-preservation, when you look at other serial killers or offenders, serial offenders, when does the ego take over? Because I understand, you know, as he's committing these crimes, he doesn't want to get caught. He keeps doing it. Maybe then it's like, okay, it's getting too hard, either because of ailments or just getting older, or maybe he's in a in a relationship where he gets those urges met other ways. But at what point 
does ego take over saying, well, I do want credit or I do want my name seen? Or is it completely possible that someone like this may take all these secrets to the grave? Well, let's look at, at option one. Option one is he sees this special on TV and he sees how he's being portrayed and he thinks, well, they haven't portrayed me the way I think I should have been portrayed. I'm probably the most prolific sexual offender in, in California, if not the United States, if not the world. And I beat all of law enforcement. They never caught me. That's what happened in DTK. Somebody was going to basically take credit for writing his story, and, and BTK decided to come out of um, hiding after 18 years. So it's possible that something like this that has gotten a lot of attention and a lot of media, if, if something's going to kind of provoke him to come forward, that, that certainly could be it. That could certainly cause him to say, I want credit for this. But here's the thing. We, we haven't seen him want credit for his crimes before. Or if he did, he did it in a way that was pretty subtle. So as much as I'd like to say we could see this after um, this series runs, this is not something we've seen with, with this offender. Not to say it couldn't happen. So that's why I say it's more likely that since that doesn't appear to be one of his personality traits, that no response means either that he didn't, that he didn't see it, he's not aware of it, he doesn't have full cognitive abilities, um, therefore is confused about a lot of things, or he's, he's not alive anymore. Part of your interview in the Unmasking a Killer documentary that we found so fascinating is how you talk about the need to recognize the early signs of these types of behaviors in children. You shared on the show the insight that hang-ups and peeping Tom behavior are all signs of something more deviant. You called them paraphilic behaviors. Now, I find this interesting because society often minimizes those actions, especially in teenage boys, as kids being kids. So when is it paraphilic and when is it kids being kids? What should we look out for? Well, it's a combination of the traits of psychopathy beginning to manifest themselves and the paraphilic behaviors that begin to manifest themselves. And paraphilic behaviors are learned behaviors, and those occur when the little boy is seven, eight, six, seven, or eight years of age. And again, they are learned behaviors. So if someone's, you know, nephew or cousin begins to show a pattern of these behaviors over and over again, then their parent, their guardian should take note of that and immediately seek out some kind of mental health intervention. But now you combine that with someone who has a personality construct where they have no guilt or remorse for what they do, the psychopathic structure begins to manifest itself at an equally early age. And parents might see these three traits. They might see someone that is, even as a little boy, sexually aggressive, someone that's not emotionally bonded with the parents, and not just a bad one bad day, but a pattern of not bonding with parents, being sexually aggressive, and a huge risk-taker. We're looking for patterns, even in little boys. So you combine that with engaging in sexually deviant behaviors, then that's the time when parents really want to take note. Once that personality is hardwired and occurs in the mid to late 20s, for all of us, once that's hardwired, you cannot change it. You can modify behavior, but you cannot change it. 
But the same is also true for paraphilic behaviors. Most paraphiles are male, and they can evolve over time. But once you get into your teen and early 20s, and you've seen these behavior for years and years, but you've done nothing about it, the chance of being able to change that in someone or get them the help that they need goes down exponentially. Now, if psychopathy is possibly genetic, how can we help these young adults before these behaviors become hardwired? In order to help someone, they really do have to be young. The issue is if you wait too long and you explain it away by saying, well, that's just a phase or that's just what they're going um, through right now, it means nothing, Um, and then you wait until they're 16, 17, or 18, you've really allowed this problem to snowball beyond maybe what can be repaired. But it sounds like there's no guarantees. This is just a really hard-to-fix problem. It can be a very hard-to-fix problem, yes. And we've all heard of cases where, you know, the child is five years old and they're already involved in arson, trying to burn down a house or torturing animals and kill the family pet. That's certainly an extreme case. And, you know, that's going to be much more of a challenge. Can it be fixed 100%? That would be a question for a mental health person who deals specifically with some young person that's demonstrating that kind of extreme behavior. And I think that would be more the exception than the rule. But when parents start to see behavior that's just not fitting, it's just they're scaring other people, inappropriate, callous, it's sexually deviant, don't wait. Dr. O'Toole, thank you so much for sharing your insights today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Um, You're very welcome. It was my pleasure. Thank you. So again, if you have information about the Golden State Killer, you can call the FBI at 1-800-CALL-FBI. That's 1-800-225-5324. Or submit a tip online at tips.fbi.gov. In part five of the Unmasking a Killer documentary, airing this coming Sunday night, April 8th at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific on HLN, we'll explore why law enforcement believes the Golden State Killer is still out there and some of the theories they're continuing to explore about his identity and possible location. We'll also investigate a series of burglaries committed in the early 70s in Visalia, California, that some in law enforcement believe to be the early work of the East Area Rapist. And on the podcast, we welcome back Detective Sergeant Ken Clark of the Sacramento Sheriff's Department to give us a more detailed look at the Visalia burglary series, along with the Cordova Meadows burglaries that law enforcement recently uncovered, and why they believe both series could have been a training ground for the East Area Rapist. So watch the conclusion of the Unmasking a Killer documentary on HLN Sunday night, and then listen to the podcast on Monday. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And please leave us a five-star rating and review while you're there. Thanks for listening. 